Hey, welcome to the past. I'm so pleased you've downloaded this 21st episode of Tales from Tudor Times. This podcast is a companion to my series of romantic suspense books with time travel twists. The first of these novels is Tangled in Tudor Times. By the way, if you haven't picked up Tangled in Tudor Times yet, it's on Amazon in both Kindle and paperback. There's so much history that doesn't fit into a novel. And that's where this historical tidbits cast comes in. Like our Tangled in Tudor Times heroine, Bella Salas, these are things you might notice if you're unexpectedly tossed into the 16th century. This episode is Catherine Howard, no will but his. In the last five monthly episodes, I shared that I visited New York City in early December of 2022. There I was lucky enough to see the radical humorous musical Six played on Broadway and written by Lucy Moss and Toby Marlowe. The show is built around the classic British school children's rhyme that helps students remember what happened to Henry VIII's six wives. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. In the play, the band of wives remind us that everybody knows that we used to be six wives, but now we're ex-wives. Later they share All you ever hear and read about is our ex and the way it ended. But a pair doesn't beat a royal flush. You're going to find out how he got unfriended. My luck went farther. Not only did I get caught up in the drama and craziness of six, I also made it to New York City in time for the final weeks of the sumptuous museum exhibit, The Tudors, Art and Majesty in Renaissance England, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, also known as The Met. Though this exhibit has closed in New York City now, you can still find details of it by searching metmuseum.org using the keyword exhibitions. And here's something neato. Does anybody still say neato? It's right up there with Keen. The same exhibit is coming to my local FAMSF, that's Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco. I can see it again this June of 2023. Yeah, I already got my ticket. In each of these Six Wives episodes, I talk more about how my experiences between the museum exhibit and the show Six dovetail. I share my time as a Six fan with objects I saw at Tudor Art Majesty, one wife each month. These episodes are not just straight bios of the Queen. There are plenty of great podcasts about each of them. And I would recommend you search on Dr. Cat, that's Cat with a K, or BBC History Extra, looking for the, those, those podcasts on the different wives and Henry and Elizabeth. I'm pretty sure I listened to one of my favorite historians, Lucy Worsley, also talking about Henry's wives. Instead of trying to copy what somebody else is already doing well, each month I look for something unusual or another way of looking at or just plain poking my nose into these six women's lives. January was Catherine of Aragon, February was about Anne Boleyn, March Jane Seymour, April Anna Cleves, and who do we say comes in May? You remember, I included it in the title. This month's cast focuses on the way too young for her wedding, Catherine Howard. Here we go. We start off with No Will of Her Own, followed by The Lighter Side of Catherine's Life, Music and Dancing. We proceed to objects that speak of Catherine Howard. And finally, I share an excerpt from Tangled in Tudor Times. By the way, the Tudors reigned from 1485 to 1603, 
When I mention the reign of Queen Elizabeth, the first daddy, Henry VIII, I'm talking about the second Tudor ruler who reigned from 1509 to 1547. This is sometimes called the Henrician era, even though his father was also a Henry VII. When I refer to the Elizabethans or the Elizabethan era, I'm talking about the period between 1558 and 1603, when the last Tudor monarch, Elizabeth I, was on the throne. Let's start with no will of her own. Once married to Henry VIII as his fifth wife, Catherine Howard chose the words, no will but his, for the motto on her queen's badge. But had she ever have a, had a chance to have a will of her own? Her mother died when she was still a child, and it seems that Catherine was of no particular interest to other family members who might have helped her develop her character and teach her something about exercising her own will or the ways of the world when it came to predatorial men. Catherine may have been as young as 11 or 12 when she was sent to join the noble household of the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, her step-grandmother. In this court-like environment, Catherine was given a minimal education that included reading, writing, and music. She was still an extremely young teenager when her music teacher, Henry Mannix, became the first man known to take sexual advantage of her. In the musical Six, she sings, Broad, dark, sexy Mannix taught me all about dynamics. He was 23 and I was 13 going on 30. We spent hours strumming the lute, striking the chords and blowing the flute. He plucked my strings all the way to G, went from major to minor, C to D. Her next infatuation was with Francis Derham, possibly when she was 14. He was, as Catherine sings, the sexy secretary to the Dowager Duchess. Derham began creeping into the dormitory chamber, where Catherine's roommates later reported what sounded to them like a full-blown sexual relationship. In the case of both of these older men, her grandmother found out. How does she handle it? She struck Catherine and blamed her for being a wanton. It seems that the teenage Catherine should just have known better when it came to watching out for men so much older than she was. Her story reminds me of a young girl I'm related to, who was also 12. She appeared in court to report sexual molestation in public by a 20-year-old man. He had stopped her when she was biking home from the grocery store, ostensibly to ask directions. I was in the courtroom and heard the man's lawyer repeatedly asking her if she had been wearing a bra. She wasn't very developed and hadn't started wearing one yet, but she was horribly embarrassed. Imagine being asked this in a public court at this age. She told me later that her mother told her she should start wearing a bra, whether she needed one or not. As my young relative grew up, read, and paid attention to what she heard, she learned that the molestation hadn't been her fault, and that what had happened to her was about power, not sexuality. What did Catherine learn? What she sings in Six may provide a clue. I feel the chemistry like I get you and you get me, and maybe this is it. He just cares so much, it feels legit. Who was interested enough in Catherine to tell the young girl that the relationships she engaged in with these much older men weren't legit at all? 
And what, as a result, did she learn about how to handle her relationships with men as she got older? There are no clear records on what age Catherine Howard had reached when she married Henry VIII. Some historians think she was as young as 17. Others that she might have been 21. Once married in 1540, she had about 17 months to live as Henry's wife. Having then lost her role as the queen, she had two more months before she was executed for adultery in February of 1542. Her trouble started not long after she became queen when her former lover, Francis Derham, arrived at the Tudor court and demanded political favors from Catherine. Eventually, she gave in to his desire for a high-ranking office. I'd like to be a time-traveling fly on the wall when Derham threatened her with exposure of her non-virginal state upon entering marriage. Eventually, she gave him what he wanted. The man was willing to talk. In fact, had started doing so. Despite her youth, Catherine already knew what could come of his loose lips. And then there was Henry's close buddy, gentleman of the king's privy chamber, Thomas Culpepper. Culpepper was known at court as a sexual predator, but he'd always gotten away with whatever behavior he wanted because of his relationship to the king. Courtiers were aware, were aware he was showing interest in the queen. Rumors got around. There was proof of the queen's interest in taking this lover when a letter turned up written by Catherine to Sir Thomas Culpepper. If I relate that to people sending inappropriate texts, I guess I get why somebody in her position would have made an error like that. Historians are starting to interpret the letter in new ways. Did it actually show that the queen was eager to go to bed with her husband's friend? Or was she trying, with sweet words, to appease and hold him off? Eventually, the word went all the way to the top. Trials commenced. Catherine admitted her guilt. By this time, guilt must have seemed normal to her. People had been telling her she was a wanton when it came to men since she entered her teens. My teenage relative had access to education that Catherine didn't. She learned that she had a will she could exercise when it came to her interactions with others and that she wasn't automatically guilty when men attempted to be inappropriate with her. What did young Catherine, with her minimal education and the lack of interest shown her by those who should have cared for her, learn? When it came to men, there's no will but his. It's always the girl's fault. Music and dancing, the lighter side of Catherine's life. During Catherine Howard's time in the 16th century, music played an essential role in the lives of the nobility and gentry. As a young woman in the Tudor court, Catherine would have been exposed to a variety of music and likely engaged in musical activities. Some of the specific types of music she might have played or sung include choral music. Before her marriage to Henry, Catherine Howard was a lady-in-waiting to the then Queen Anne of Cleves. Like these other noble ladies, she may have participated in choral singing to entertain the court. She could also have been part of a chapel choir performing sacred music in religious services. Motets and masses were popular during the period, with composers like Thomas Tallis and William Byrd, that's B-Y-R-D, becoming well known. By the way, I'm a choral singer in the Stanford Symphonic Chorus at Stanford University. We sing sacred music as well, though it tends to have been composed in later times. And then there were courtly songs. Courtly songs were secular, so they were non-sacred music performed at the royal court. They often featured themes of love, romance, and courtly manners. 
Catherine might have been familiar with popular courtly song composers of the time, such as John Dowland, Thomas Campion, or Henry VIII himself, who was known to be a musician and composer. Madrigals gained popularity during the Renaissance. Unlike religious choral singing and stylized courtly love music, madrigals were usually sung in small groups and focused on poetic texts of love, nature, and human emotions. They often had a playful feeling to them. Catherine might have taken part in informal gatherings where madrigals were performed. Let's not forget instrumental music. As suggested in the musical six, Catherine may have played a lute. It was a common pastime for young women of noble birth. Popular instruments of the time included not only the lute, but also the virginal, which was a precursor to the harpsichord that I associate with Mozart, even though we also associate Mozart with the development of the pianoforte. And also the harp would have been another popular instrument. She may also have heard or played one of my favorite instruments of the period, which was and is known as a clava organ. That's C-L-A-V-I-O-R-G-A-N. If you have the chance to walk through London's Victorian Albert Museum, you can find a beautiful clava organ of the time. You remember the Victorian Albert from Tangled in Tudor Times, right? That's where Will Sainsbury worked for several years while he was trying to find a way to return to his home time in the 16th century. Though I haven't encountered any particular references to instruments Catherine played, other than her lyrics in the musical six, the lute was an instrument quite commonly played by women in the court. And then there's dancing. Dance was a big part of life at court. Catherine might have watched dance performances or participated in them. Typical dances of the time included the pavin, galliard, and the branle. Branle is B-R-A-N-L-E. I had to double check the pronunciation of Branle and Pavin, because I always thought it was Pavain, but according to what I found is Pavin, which does sound more French, doesn't it? Now let's look for objects in the exhibit, the Tudors, Art and Majesty in Renaissance England, that spoke to me of Catherine Howard when I saw them at the Met. The first one that drew me was a small painting by Isaac Oliver. It's really an Elizabethan piece but it sung Catherine Howard when I studied it. The fun-loving setting reminds me of the joie de vivre that is associated with Catherine. And of course, the Princess Elizabeth and Catherine Howard were friendly during the time the princess's father was married to his fifth wife. So I can imagine Queen Elizabeth looking back to Catherine's life when she sees this piece. It's called A Party in the Open Air, and I'm quoting below from the show placard. I know these placards are referred to by museum staff as tombstones, but that always seems creepy to me. The picture is executed in watercolor with gold and silver on vellum laid on card. Remember we talked about laying things on card and we talked, I think the very first episode, um, uh, on miniatures, we talked about them using vellum and card to create them. On this small piece of vellum, Isaac Oliver created one of the most ambitious Elizabethan paintings. In a woodland landscape that opens onto a view of distant buildings, a crowded company of elegant figures stroll, hunt, and make music or love. With its contrast between forest and architecture, uninhibited revelers, and well-behaved town dwellers, the miniature recalls Shakespearean comedies in which the protagonists pass through woodland spaces as they work through conflicts and achieve transformation or resolution. 
Though Catherine wasn't known to be particularly pious, she would have carried out her religious obligations. Another object in the exhibit is the Great Coverdale Bible. It was produced in London in the first year of Catherine's marriage. I imagine it lying on a shelf in Henry's chambers. She might well have passed by it often, even if she didn't actually take the time to read it. The Great Bible, illustrated by Hornbaugh and printed by Grafton and Whitechurch, was created in London in the year of Catherine Howard's marriage, 1540. It's ink on vellum and has additional illuminations, which I think means that uh, the illuminations maybe were, maybe gilt, that kind of thing, color added onto it for the, the illumination part, you know, the little, I don't know what you call that. See, this is the trouble I get into when I slip out off my script and start thinking even more about stuff. Anyway, it's considered to be ink on vellum with additional illuminations. And if I'm going to quote from the placard, the Coverdale Bible visualized Henry VIII's new role immediately after he declared himself supreme head of the church in England. At the title page's foot, the king dispenses copies of the Bible to his clergy and knights. The Great Bible was the first legal translation that was obligatory, obligatory, that would be how we'd say that, in every church in England. So if you were a church in England, you had to have the Great Bible there. At the top of its title page, Henry communicates directly with God blasphemous and unthinkable only years before. This hand-tinted and parchment-printed edition was the ruler's own copy. That's why I think Catherine would have seen it. And finally, the exhibit included another object made in the first year of Catherine's 1540 marriage. It's the design for a sand glass believed to have been created by our old friend Hans Holbein. I'm sure you remember what Anne of Cleves has to say about Hans in the musical Six. Though the museum plaque refers to a sand glass being used in a serious or religious environment, I like to imagine Catherine using such a timekeeper while practicing her lute to make sure she stopped in time to change her gown for a banquet. Okay, here was what the placard has to say. Sand glass, designed in England or Germany circa 1540, to be made of gilded silver, blown glass, sand, and gold thread. And now I'm going to quote very directly. With its scrolling acanthus leaves, the design of this finely worked gadget is often attributed to Hans Holbein. Simple to use, but a feat of technical precision to craft, the sand glass is flipped by switching its hinged bracket between the left and right hand sockets of the wall mount. Considerably easy to, easier to operate and maintain than an early modern clock or watch, this device was intended for an oratory, chapel, or study both as a symbolic reminder of the passing of time and the transience of life, and more practically, to mark half-hour periods for prayer, meditation, or study. Finally, I'm going to share an excerpt from Tangled in Tudor Times. Thinking back, Catherine Howard's family wasn't unusual in providing only a minimal education for their daughters. Would it have made a difference for her if they had? Interest in improving a girl's knowledge base and awareness was growing during the Renaissance. In this excerpt from Tangled in Tudor Times, our time-traveling heroine, Bella Salas, briefly reflects that the Hobies are such a family. Sir Thomas shot a dour look across the garden towards the still giggling children. It's the empty beaker that makes the most noise, Sir Thomas said gruffly. Lady Hobie picked up two ledgers and made for the far end of the room. In response to a stern look, Lucy and Pip trailed after her. 
I've learned that the Hobies felt strongly about education for daughters as well as sons. They were also proponents of the new learning. Wright had been chosen to tutor the kids because he knew his way around classical texts in both Greek and Latin and had a strong interest in Roman history. Lady Hobie taught her children what I would call math and she called ciphering. Her kids were soon checking the sums in their mother's recently updated accounting records. Wright had told me that it was her method for building their skills as well as a clever way to get her own sums checked. Want to hear more about Bella's visit to the Elizabethan era? Tangled in Tudor Times is available at Amazon.com as either an ebook or paperback. Look for Tangled in Tudor Times on Amazon.com by clicking on the description link in your podcast app or search Amazon for Tangled in Tudor Times. And if you're wondering about leaving a short review or just clicking the stars that indicate your opinion, please do. Reviews help me move up in the Amazon queue so that more people will see this book. See you in the 16th century.